Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Lou. Hey, guys. And Noah. Hey, y'all. As we record this, it's Monday, February 4th in Rochester, New York, and today it got up to 63 degrees, which is a record for this date. The previous record was set just three years ago at 59 degrees. It's not supposed to be 60 in February in Rochester, New York. I don't say this just to do idle chit-chat about the weather, but because it poses, you know, a nice way of getting into today's topic at hand. What are we talking about today? How climate change affects all of us, but especially workers. Like always. That, that's that's a thing. concise a way of putting it as any. We're going to be talking about climate change, this big, broad subject, which there are so many things we could talk about, but we want to focus on here, you know, at least at the start of the show on the ways it'll impact workers, both in the workplace and outside of the workplace, and you know what it all means as best we can explain it. Yeah, it's it was tough. Like the weather this past week was insane, and having to go to work in that, even though I work inside, it was still just nightmarish. Right, because less than a week ago, you know, we were having basically a blizzard where it was, you know zero degrees outside, mm-hmm. you know, sub-zero wind chills. Right. And we were much better off than, say, the Midwest, where it got, like, yeah. negative 20 in Chicago. There were parts of the Midwest this past week where exposure to the cold would give you frostbite in about two minutes. It was that cold. 17 people at least died mm-hmm. because of cold injuries or, or just freezing to death. Exposure. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of, you know, cold weather naturally prompts a tweet from the president being like, ah, wouldn't it be nice if we had global warming, which we do have it. That's but, why it was so cold. Yes, there's not to get too, you know, meteorolo- meteorological. To get weather-like. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> the polar vortex that we saw last week is one side effect of this broader thing we call climate change. You know, it's a reflection of reduced pressure over the Arctic and, you know, a weakened jet stream. It's one of the most amazing parts of becoming an adult in the early 21st century has been realizing that there are tons of grown men and women who do not understand the difference between weather and climate, which is a thing that, like, my sixth grade science textbook covered in detail. (laughs) This is not complicated. This is not difficult. This is not particularly subtle. So, you know, increased hurricane activity in the Atlantic and uh, Gulf of Mexico, climate change, increased droughts, increased occurrence of droughts, Mm -hmm. flooding everywhere. Um, The seven feet of snow that Buffalo got in two days a couple years back Um, All of these are extreme weather events that are more likely to occur because of climate change. The thing is, if you think of weather as just weather and the weather is extreme all the time, then you don't seem to think climate change is a thing. 
And it's, it's this weird, like, cognitive dissonance that you have to have in order to be like, yeah, the world is literally burning around my ears. Actually, with the, in the case of wildfires, literally burning around your ears mm-hmm. with increased frequency, and you don't seem to attribute that to climate change. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, you know, we have tended to talk about climate change as something that is going to happen down the road, but increasingly it's something that's happening now mm-hmm. in this country. And the U.S. is by no means like suffering the worst impacts of climate change. You know, it's being hardest felt elsewhere in the world and generally in places that one, haven't put out as much carbon into the atmosphere mm-hmm. as we have, and two, have much less power to do anything about the problem. Yeah. It's profoundly unfair. It's yes. profoundly unfair. And, and also countries that are actually trying to do something about the problem, unlike the U.S., which on the federal level right now is pulling out of climate treaty after climate treaty because it's not fair to the U.S. economy which I know we'll get more into this later, but the fact that the U.S. is basically claiming that they're not going to join in what little efforts there have been Mm -hmm. to combat any kind of climatological disaster um, because we don't feel like it is fittingly childish. Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes, as you point out, the the argument from... Americans and from climate change deniers more broadly is that, you know, the economic impacts of, you know, doing something about climate change will be too harsh or too uh, punitive to make it worth the effort, which is silly on its face because, as we know, (laughs) the effects of climate change are going to be much worse than, you know, one or two points of GDP or Mm -hmm. whatever measure you want to use. But we have studies saying that this will have an impact on the economy. You know, just the nature of unfettered climate change is going to harm productivity. It's going Mm -hmm. to harm GDP. If that's the metric you want to use as your basis to make decisions about public policy, climate change is going to harm that. And and the important part to note there is that the reason it's going to harm productivity or GDP is not that, I don't know, it's going to make the New York Stock Exchange computers harder to run, so that mm-hmm. might very well be the case, but it's because it the brunt of climate change and the majority of its harmful effects are going to be on the people that make society run. They're going to be on the people who work for those companies that are producing those emissions. They're going to be the people who try to fix those effects Mm -hmm. in the first place. And Ryan, you were saying that we often talk about climate change as a future event, but for people, it's basically already here. Mm -hmm. You you shared with us an article about people in in southeastern Texas and Galveston and Houston talking about the effects of climate change on them directly, Mm -hmm. that they can't cover air conditioning bills, that they're, you know, um, having heat stroke at work routinely, Mm -hmm. that they're getting in in some places, the businesses that are near them are producing these chemical emissions that cause weird smells and uh, worsen asthma and allergies Mm -hmm. and things like that. Another example, uh, Louisiana, I saw this fascinating article a couple years ago now about how like the state map is just constantly out of date because more and more land of the bayou is now water. That's not land anymore. And it, people are seeing the landscape change around them in ways that where it had been relatively stable for maybe the p- past hundred years. Mm-hmm. 
as you were saying, this is going to impact productivity because if you're working outdoors, a heat wave is something that's at the very least going to make you work slower, if not cause you bodily harm. You know, if it gets to 100, 110 outdoors and you're a roofer, if you're working on some infrastructure project outside, that's going to be a real obstacle to getting things done. And just beyond the the day-to-day weather of extreme heat and everything like Mm -hmm. that, if you think about the destructive forces of the extreme weather that we've been seeing, Mm -hmm. um, Noah, you've talked several times about the effects of Hurricane Maria on Puerto Rico, how it completely destroyed the island. Mm -hmm. Like how the, the people there... Everybody was harmed, but the people who were harmed the most were the people who are not wealthy enough to leave the island or have several homes or can immediately uh, afford to repair their house. There are still thousands and thousands of people living on that island who don't have roofs, Mm -hmm. who don't have functioning anything. Or or conversely, the people we've talked about on this show who went to Puerto Rico to establish like Bitcoin havens after the hurricane. Right. I yes. confess that it has always confused it has always confused me because if you accept that as a result of climate change these mm-hmm. hurricanes are going to be happening more and more and more mm-hmm. then why would you try to build your paradise in a place that you know <laughs> is going to be besieged by worse and worse weather events like do you expect to just build a seawall for the ages right. or something never mind they probably <laughs> no, do it, it, i think yeah. i just answered it, my question it, right but but that's that extends beyond that like how many times has the florida coast been devastated by hurricane after hurricane mm-hmm. and people still bet build on coastlines mm-hmm. all they, the time yeah. you know, true beachfront property is right. still valuable right they build farther and farther into the forests of california which have been basically on fire for the past Mm -hmm. decade or more. And then every year we have record-breaking fires in California, either in terms of economic cost or in terms of lives lost Mm -hmm. every single year. Well, and the thing is that the people with the political and economic muscle are the ones you hear about. So, for example, you don't have to go that far. Last year when we had – was it last year that we had flooding from Lake Ontario into Mm -hmm. – lakeside towns around here, Mm -hmm. people who own lakeside property were actually able to get some relief because Mm -hmm. they could band together and they're, generally speaking, fairly well off. Right. You you hear a lot about how this will impact insurance companies and less about how it will impact, you know, public housing because a lot of that is on the coast in this Mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just my favorite example of how the rich and anybody who is not working class just don't exactly live with the rest of us was Kim Kardashian hiring private security to protect her home from wildfires in Malibu. That's that's just or Donald Trump has famously like had like seawall construction around one of his properties, I think in Scotland, perhaps mm. or Florida, definitely, <clears throat> because while a lot of people will talk about denying climate change, you know, mm-hmm. they see it in their backyards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like most famously, ExxonMobil did plenty of research in the 70s and 80s on climate change, decided they needed to build their oil platforms higher. And then at the same time, they're one of the chief deniers of cli- climate change and also influencing and 
actively worsening climate change by continuing to drill for oil and, and fossil fuels. And fossil fuel companies are maybe the primary beneficiaries of all this happening because they have reaped the profits for decades after mm -hmm. we knew this was going to be a problem. But it's not just fossil fuel companies that are finding ways to make money off of the crisis. Uh, there was a recent article in Bloomberg. The headline was... Uh, Muggy Disney Parks, downed AT&T Towers, firms tally climate risk. But it also has a lengthy segment about how those same firms are thinking of ways that this might be good for their bottom line. Just to read here, quote, For one thing, more people will get sick. As the climate changes, there will be expanded markets for products for tropical and weather-related diseases, including waterborne illness, wrote Merkin Co., the company didn't respond to a request for comment. More disasters will make iPhones even more vital to people's lives, Apple predicted. Quote, as people begin to experience severe weather events with greater frequency, we expect an increasing need for confidence and preparedness in the arena of personal safety and the well-being of loved ones, the company wrote. Its mobile devices can serve as a flashlight or a siren. They can provide first aid instructions. They can act as a radio and they can be charged for many days via car batteries or even hand cranks. Right. I remember <laughs> that part. Oh, my God. You know, what, what we're saying here is, on the one hand, climate change is going to kill a lot of people. But on the other, <laughs> it, might line some it, it might line some executives' pockets. So it's impossible to say if it's good or not. <laughs> that, that's very much the calculation being made in boardrooms across the country. Well, and, and not Amazing. just across the country, right? Across the world, as yeah. you mentioned. Um, because we, we talk about the stuff that's happening in the U.S. And not to lessen the suffering of people who are dealing with the effects of climate change in the U.S. I mean, this is a country that literally let an entire city drown mm -hmm. because of one idiot president's fit of peak. And then let an entire island do it because of another idiot president's fit of peak. Mm -hmm. But you look at things that are happening around the world, and in India, they're, they're dealing with 110-plus degrees mm -hmm. of temperature a day, you know, and, and that's a consistent thing. There are very few cities in the U.S. where that is a consistent problem, mm -hmm. mostly in the southwest, in places like Phoenix and Santa Fe and so on. In India, that's many of the most populous cities, not just in the country, but in the world. Mm -hmm. And they're having to come up with emergency solutions to actually l just lessen the impact of that, not eliminate it. Mm -hmm. They're replanting green spaces within cities. They're using reflective paint to try and reduce indoor heat, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and at the same time, they're trying to get air conditioning because, you know, there's a lot of places in India, right. unlike, say, the southern United States, where air conditioning is mostly standard. If you don't have air conditioning during those conditions, it becomes a completely different magnitude of problem. Right. And that's that's the sad part is is even though we can say and we can talk about generally how we can deal with and help mitigate climate change from happening is by using less energy and everything like that. It doesn't necessarily speak to the fact that without some of these inventions like air conditioning, people will die. Mm -hmm. And the worst part is that it, it even forces us off uh, forces us all into a standoff because when you use an air conditioner, that hot air has to go someplace. Right. And it goes off into other people's streets and faces. 
So it puts us all into an impossible situation where to survive, we have to use or but where people have to use these inventions in ways that are going to eventually hurt other people. Yeah. So we're all put into kind of this big bloodbath of what's coming down the line mm-hmm. of, of these extreme events. I mean, it, it's the same with it, it's the same with our kind of cold weather. If you're somebody who has to work during a polar vortex, first of all, Godspeed. Bundle up. Yeah, bundle <laughs> up and bring Stay a shovel Stay warm to work out there. And, you know, I don't know, make sure you use salt and whatever. But everything you do to prepare for that, like mm-hmm. if you're in a car, you are a you are a safety hazard. I don't care how good a driver <laughs> you are. If you have to use any of the various chemical methods we have for melting snow or ice, all damage the environment that you're around, you know? There, there's just no way to free yourself of having an impact on not just the nature around you, but the human beings that you right. live next door to and with. And that gets to sort of, you know, a broader issue, which is that for about decades, you know, the narrative about climate change has been about reducing your personal impact, your personal carbon footprint. And we know that 100 largest companies are putting out 70% of the emissions in the world and that, you know, individual choices alone are not going to solve this problem because for a lot of people, there aren't alternatives. There aren't options for them to choose from that would have less of a carbon impact. You know, if you're in a city that doesn't have public transit, you're going to have to drive to work, you know, mm-hmm. unless you want to bike when it's zero outside, which, you know, people <laughs> rightly are not going to do. Right. You know, the governor of Kentucky used to walk uphill to school both ways in sub-zero degree weather, and he doesn't understand why other people can't do it. This is an actual thing that happened, by the way. I'm not making this up. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's difficult because we've framed the conversation around how to prevent climate change around individual actions and consumer mm-hmm. actions and put everything on the people who have the least ability to actually impact this, namely workers and everyday people. And, and you see this in some of the backlash to, you know, believing in climate change. You see like people who correctly point out that Al Gore has a private jet. They recognize the ways in which, you know, the wealthy are more responsible for this problem than any of us on the ground and more capable of doing something about it. But they lash out against, you know, liberal do-gooders rather than, you know, use that information to form sort of a class-based solution to the issue, Mm -hmm. if you will. Or... Uh, likewise, in France, their recent, you know, yellow jacket protests were sparked by, you know, the imposition of carbon taxes by a president who has also reduced taxes on the wealthy in that country. You know, the people, it becomes almost a, you know, cultural war mm-hmm. issue rather than, you know, a matter of science. It's not surprising that we reduce climate change to a matter of individual choice and individual action when that's kind of what we do about everything. We we decided a long time ago, it, especially in the United States, but really in the global north, that we're all um, the economic man. We're all the rational human being that doesn't exist, but the darling of economists. And so that means that we always have perfect information about the market and about prices and about firms and like Alvin, mm-hmm. Simon, and Theodore and what they're producing. And for some reason, 
this means that no matter what the problem is, no matter how intractable it is, no matter how polarized it is, no matter how much it is a small group of people causing the issue uh, for the rest of us and and ruining the thing, it always is up to each of us to like figure out the ways in which we can do that. We've talked about it on this show before, how... You know, the the solution to never having any money is, you know, you have to save, but you don't have any money, so you can't save in the first place. Mm -hmm. The solution to people not having pensions is, well, you invest in a 403B or a 401C or whatever, or 401K or whatever the hell. And none of those really work because they're all dependent on the same stock market that actually prefers it when people suffer. And it's much the same way with, with all this thing. We don't Number one, we, we make it a thing of individual choice, but then we don't actually reward those individual choices. Mm-hmm. We make it harder to live in a green way. We make it more expensive to live in a green way. The closest thing we've gotten to any of this is, uh, what is it, like a tax credit for buying an electric car. Which that's, I think is going away soon. Of course if, it is. If it hasn't already. So, yeah. so that's the closest thing we've gotten to any kind of, oh, you've made a choice to help the environment and ensure the long-term survival of the human species. Here's like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks off your tax bill for a year. That's, it's, if we claim to actually want to do it on that plane, we're not even doing that. Right. Let alone the actual kind of broad-based solution that you would need. Mm -hmm. On so many issues, we've replaced the safety net with, you know, bootstraps, if that. And that's the root of a lot of our problems. And sort of as we wrap up the segment, you know, I want to reiterate the point that this is going to hurt the workers the most because unlike the fossil fuel CEOs who caused this issue, they can't just up and leave. We have borders in preventing, you know, your movement from, say, a Central American country that is going to be unbearably hot by the middle of this century to, you know, some milder climate, like, say, the one in Rochester, New York. You know, we have, and those things aren't really barriers for the rich who can just buy a new island, you know, the ones that are still above water. <laughs> right. Or, or they, can buy an, they can buy an existing island and kick the people They can off buy Greenland. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're probably already doing that. Yeah. Which has rapid deglaciation. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's a lot more land to go So around. it is actually going to be Greenland for about a year until it just sinks into, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. the North Atlantic. Until the permafrost melts and then all the carbon gases r- caught in the permafrost kill us all. Yep. It's cheery stuff. Big, giant, dirty bomb. Just before we uh, close this segment, I, I, I want to get back to the Bloomberg article because there's such a perfect quote in here from uh, Google writing about how more people might use Google Earth because <gasps> they need to know where the land is now. Um, quote, Where'd it go? <laughs> quote, This opportunity driver could have a positive impact on our brands. That is the most had to prepare a presentation at the last minute to justify a grossly inflated public relations salary thing. No, guys, it's cool because the brands... I'm telling you, you know, there's, on the one hand, kills a lot of people. On the other hand, bottom lines. Uh, I don't know. Is it good or not? We'll be back with more positive impact for brands after this break. (laughs) 
You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined by Lou. Hey. And Noah. Hi. We've been talking about climate change and how the majority of its impacts will be felt by workers. And as you know, if you've listened to the show at all, we're a pro-worker show. We are typically pro-labor. But there are aspects in which, you know, organized labor has, we, we have critiques of them. And the climate is most definitely one of them because we feel on this show, I, I think, all of us would agree that yep. unions have, in many cases, been short-sighted when it comes to environmental issues, prioritizing the prevalence of jobs over the long-term health and well-being of the working class. And we want to talk in this segment about that sort of dichotomy that has been created between the environment and jobs. Yeah, it's, it's not particularly surprising. As we were saying in the last segment... The emphasis that capitalistic society has put uh, on climate change is basically that it's up to each of us to make whatever choices we will to change our lives to lessen some small amount of our carbon emissions instead of asking like the actual major Mm -hmm. offenders to reform in any way. It tells us that, you know, we have to make choices without giving us options. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if you are certain communities, the choice is between, you know, working for a fossil fuel company and not working, you know, not putting food on the table. And that's a choice that has resulted in a lot of unions being, in many cases, on the same side as their bosses on the issue of the climate Mm -hmm. and to everyone's detriment. Because to do otherwise would be in the short term to sell out their workers and there's not really a way around that for them. A union, even more than a company, it is literally an organization of workers. If you don't have them, if you don't have people employed, you don't have a union. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is it's understandable what uh, this this myopia because the contrast that we're all being forced to obey is that you can have money or you can have the environment. You can have the greenery or you can have the green. And we, we'd like to talk now, I think, about the ways in which this doesn't actually have to be one or the other. Yeah. Hopefully. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, because so when I, I was growing up, I grew up in Houston, which is a big oil town, probably the oil town in the world. And every time oil prices dropped, it would make pulling and extracting oil too expensive and people in Houston would just lose their minds. They'd be like, oh no, this is the worst thing ever. This is jobs. And it's like, but on the one hand, there's less, there's oil stains in the ground where it belongs and the earth is better for it. But you guys have to have expensive oil and everything like that. So growing up, like I strongly know this weird opposition that people have set up between having a good environment and clean air and drinkable water and jobs. Mm-hmm. And it's really frustrating because it doesn't necessarily have to be that one Two, ultimately the environment is more important. Yeah. yeah. I, I distinctly remember several years ago 
after BP um, <laughs> destroyed the Gulf of Mexico and then <laughs> apologized, sort of. I remember them cutting a commercial that I, for some reason, was forced to watch on the internet because I do remember not having a choice in the matter, <laughs> where they just apparently found the one shrimp fisherman who had not had his business uh, torn to shreds by the spill, and the one person in some other seagoing related economic activity and so on, but then a bunch of BP employees in the area. Mm -hmm. And they were all saying how thankful they were for BP in their communities. Right. And it's very disturbing because BP is also the reason that those communities are experiencing, you know, economic decline. And right. again, that one big area of that one, one big city in that area almost got wiped off the map by yeah. an extreme weather event. Yeah. So th there's definitely a long history of the worst offenders right. forcing people to to thank them for their beneficence in, in granting jobs and economic activity. I, I'm glad you brought up a commercial. Um, the Super Bowl was last night now, and I don't remember if there were any ads for ExxonMobil, but if there had been, their recent campaign has been this cutesy rhyming crap about <laughs> how... It's, it's not even about the products they provide. It is about how jobs and energy produce benefits all the way through the economy and about the jobs they, quote, create. And they have been able in many to sort of brand this sort of dichotomy about jobs versus the environment to their favor. They aren't the, the people responsible for, you know, wiping out humanity's chances of healthy living. They are the job creators. Right. Or, or they, they, they are those people, but they because they create jobs, you're not allowed to criticize them for right. doing that. Yeah. Or, and they don't even have to be 100% truthful about the number of jobs that are created. Like with the Keystone Pipeline, they, they said, mm -hmm. you know, thousands and thousands of jobs. Long term, it's more like 500 jobs? Yeah. For and a pipeline that stre stretches the entire continent, basically. And which already has leaked like twice. Yeah. So, so on the one hand, 500 people get a job. Cool. That's neat. On the other hand, uh, the environmental impacts will never go away. And even in the short term, millions of people could be affected by one workplace quality incident, mm -hmm. quote unquote. So I, I think this is part of a organized labor's sort of um, alliance, as it were, with fossil fuel industry has sort of... Um, it has parallels to you know this broader trend among you know the union movement in the U.S., which has been less antagonism towards their employers for maybe the past fifty years or so. Operating with management, trying to find labor peace, you know, at the expense of maybe labor quality, um, at the expense of working conditions. You know, we've seen in pretty much every industry at this point pay has gone down and union has been trying to negotiate for scraps as opposed to fighting with their companies for what's best for the long term of their workers. And yeah. No, that, that's absolutely the case. Unions have been forced into a kind of, um, in, into a Hobson's choice. They can either fight to grow the pie and be ultimately unsuccessful because for decades that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, or they can fight to, you know, 
slightly get a slightly greater share of what's there, what's left. here, right. yeah, of yeah. of the scraps as you put it, and it it's partly a result of calcification within the union movement, of leadership kind of becoming a little bit more, well, a lot bit more isolated from rank and file members and things like that. But it is also that they just became sort of completely divorced from the long-term effects of, of the industries that they were, uh, that, that they're supposed to be fighting in a sense. Yeah. Uh, opposing ultimately. Mm-hmm. The, for the longest time, the idea was if you get the right people in a room together, they will make good decisions that will be beneficial for everyone. And I think finally in the last few years, what you're seeing mm-hmm. is people realizing that no company is ever going to make decisions that are beneficial to their workers unless the other choice is a guillotine. <laughs> nice. I, I think to use a timely and concrete example of what we're talking about. In uh, the Virginia governor's race in 2017, the one that resulted in Ralph Northam becoming governor, uh, Ralph Northam, who is now under fire because there's a photo in his yearbook of someone in blackface and someone in a clan hood. And he doesn't know which one he is. (laughs) Um, I mean, whom amongst us? Literally everybody is the answer, but okay. Well, Except Brett Kavanaugh, possibly. But anyway. <laughs> we digress. Ralph Northam. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he had the support of, you know, the major labor unions in Virginia as a Democratic candidate would. You know, his opponent, a Republican, was never going to be, you know, a supporter of the labor movement, of course. But they did not extend that support to his lieutenant governor, who, Justin Fairfax, who is black, it should be noted, had opposed a pipeline project that, those unions were viewing as sort of a necessity, as something that would provide them with the jobs they wanted to see in Virginia. And as such, Fairfax was left off of some, you know, union mailers, you know, promoting Northam for governor. And that's sort of the concrete, you know, ways in which this alliance between fossil fuels and the labor movement has emerged. Yeah, and it perpetuates it because eventually then the people who get into power, which are usually Republicans anyway, and they don't give a crap, but the people who nominally should give a, you know, care about the environment don't want to care that much because the labor unions and the people that they also should be supporting aren't in favor of them. Or, or they care to the extent that they can do it within the context of, again, individual choices, of growing productivity, mm-hmm. of this mythical, eternal growth of the economy, which is how you get, not to harp on this again, but that is how you get what passes for green policy being you'll mm-hmm. save some money on your taxes because you bought an electric car. Right. It, this is something I had wanted to get into in our first segment, but you know, we talked about how you know climate change is going to have negative impacts on our productivity and our GDP, but that can't be the measure that we use for success because if that's the measure, then we're going to continue going down this road we're right. on and it's going to have disastrous effects on human lives, not just, you know, company bottom lines. Yeah. yeah. Product, the, the pursuit of increased productivity got us to this point. I'm not sure how continuing it would fix the problem. And I, I think getting back to sort of the labor movement aspects here is there used to be a more radical element to the labor movement in the U.S. that was focused not just on jobs and, you know, 
the narrow battles of uh, you know wages and benefits, but on broader issues of what is best for the working class, of what can we do to really make life better for workers, jobs or no jobs. You know, it was a much more broader vision for what America, for what the world could be. And we've gone away from that. And and the commies got kicked out from the AFL-CIO ball, to quote yeah. Phil Oaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, well, that that's the problem, isn't it? Uh, during the Cold War, you had the purge of pretty much anything that smelled remotely like Marxism from basically all of American political society. And now what you've got left is this extremely narrow conception of what the labor movement can do. And stop me. And, and what it's legally allowed to do in True. many cases. Yeah. Though, to be fair, when the labor movement was, th- yeah. there were periods when it was at its most active and everything it was doing was illegal. Correct. Yeah. And, and I don't want to get into positivity too early, so stop <laughs> me if this scares anybody. This is normally third segment stuff. <laughs> but again, I think this is something that is looking up. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, Leona and Justin Fairfax and the easiest man to dunk on in America right now aside, this is something that I think unions are waking up to again. Why? Uh, is it because of the same brands that would benefit from climate change? Or is it just because the inequality is that bad? I don't know. But you do have more unions realizing that this cannot continue, that mm-hmm. the, the state that we are on or the path that we are on is literally unsustainable and that the dream of some mythical level of economic growth that will provide for everyone and allow us all to have all these luxuries is, well, it's exactly that. It's a pipe dream. It's never going to actually occur because we have very specific people in very specific positions of power denying that for the rest of us. I I think we can envision, you know, a an alternate reality, if you will, of where the union movement is concerned is fighting for the working class and in doing so fighting for a world in which the working class isn't underwater. It's fighting for workers in and out of industry who are going to face the brunt of climate change, as we discussed earlier on the show. These battles can't be separated. No. And and I think part of the problem or, or part of the obstacle to doing that is stuff that we've talked about on the show before, but how much the worker has been atomized from his fellows. If you're a unionized worker, you tend to do your work in in context where there's a, a strong communality aspect. You work in a school, you work in a factory, you work in places where everybody kind of goes into a building and, and does the thing. But uh, many of the workers that we were looking mm-hmm. at in the articles that you shared, Ryan, they do stuff like landscaping. And that is particularly hard to – historically, it has been particularly hard to organize mm-hmm. uh, employees like that because they're they're extremely under the thumb of a very direct boss mm-hmm. in a way that somebody who works for an automaker might not be. Yeah, and landscaping, one of those jobs that is – going to be worse in Mm -hmm. 2050 than it is now. And you talk about how workers have been atomized. I think unions have been, you know, atomized as well. And and that instead of a larger, broader union movement, we tend to view these things in terms of individual battles between, you know, one union and its employer. And that hasn't helped. No. Uh, But I think that is also slowly going the way Mm -hmm. of, of 
you know, the dodo, because you've got, uh, what is it, during the Marriott strikes, you had unions that weren't working in those hotels at all mm -hmm. show up to support those people. I mean, the <laughs> certain unionized MOB teams supported those strikes. But in general, I think unions are waking up to the idea that this this is no longer that specific a fight. I'm sure that it will take a lot more heavy lifting for the really big ones to realize it. But mm -hmm. the fact that even some sections are are waking up to that is a positive development. Yeah. And uh, on the subject of positivity, we'll be back after this break with uh, hopefully, you know, a way out of this mess. We're going to try. This is Punching Out, a project of the Punching Out Collective. And we want to hear about the struggles you face as a worker. You can tell us your stories by sending an email to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at punchingoutwayo. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Lou. Hey, guys. And Noah. Hey, y'all. So far on this show, we've talked about climate change and one how its impacts are mostly going to be felt by the working class two how the working class has been told for a few decades that the only solution is to drive more priuses and drink less bottled water the plural is priores thank you <laughs> and three that the labor movement which has historically been you know the best weapon working class has had has not been the most effective tool for dealing with climate change as an issue, for reducing emissions. So where does that leave us in terms of possible solutions? Well, one idea is that we're going to have to legislate our way out of this problem. The industries are not going to regulate themselves into emitting less because, as we've talked about, some of them are going to make money off of the problem. They are going to monetize this rot. So you need a counterbalance to that. You need the power of government to say, you can't do that anymore. And one of the proposed solutions for addressing climate change has been this broad thing called a Green New Deal. It includes a lot of ideas, some officially, some unofficially. It's come to mean, it's come to be a catch-all term for like the progressive solution for climate change. But what does it actually entail? Yeah, so the Green New Deal is just a, a collection of proposals. There's nothing really set in stone as to what it entails, but it's usually some mixture of policy ideas that would help mitigate some of the impacts of climate change and force uh, these negative externalities that happen because of climate change to be felt by industry and the people actually causing them. Mm -hmm. um, so Which is a good goal. Yeah. Right, it is not a bad goal. <laughs> it's it's definitely something, and it's, it's a good start. Um, but some things that they've uh, thought of doing is doing more investment into renewable energies, um, doing more low-carbon development, um, green investment, um, doing things like changing the profit or, or, or making industries like the fossil fuel industry that are profiting off of you know, making the world worse mm -hmm. and and punishing that, so to say. Um, also good. Right. Yeah, that's 100% endorsed. Um, also, uh, not directly related to, ta to climate change, but um, reducing tax evasion. 
And so that there would be an actual safety net in order to fund um, projects that would help people impacted by climate change. Uh, so these are all good policies that definitely wouldn't, they're, they're better than what we have now, 100%. Is, and that what we have now is basically nothing, especially since Trump I, got I in charge. I think to maybe put a broad bow on it, it's, the idea is that these profits from making the planet worse should instead be taxed and put towards maybe making it better. Right. Put towards, you know, green energy, whether it be solar or hydro right. or whatever you want to have. Right. So like the the original New Deal, it's an, a program that's designed to, one, pump money into the economy in order to, to create jobs and opportunities for people beyond what is there now, um, but also to create a bigger social safety net mm -hmm. that would help people impacted by climate change. Mm -hmm. And to help the workers who may not feel like they currently have an alternative right. to working for fossil fuel industry, right. for, to being a coal miner. Um, and I, I think, you know, th that branding of Green New Deal, um, I, I think that was originally like a Green Party thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the it Green was. New Deal was their thing. Um, I, I think it's sort of a, a conscious effort to, you know, say this is the sort of scale we're going to have to work on in order mm -hmm. to solve this problem. And you can make the case that even this scale is not enough, but, yeah. you know, it's certainly right. a start compared to, you know, the previous, even Democratic goal on this issue had been, you know, like a uh, tax credit for electric cars, yeah. as we had talked about. You know, it, it had been very narrowly focused. Right. And the, these policies, like, again, the New, the new Deal before it, are, are something that is absolutely necessary, Sari, if we're just going to make it through the next few few decades, let alone centuries. Um, you know, this, these are policies that we absolutely need. The only problem I have with them personally is that they're kind of termed in, in still the idea of productivity and taxing and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. which that, is boring. That's the thing. We've gone from the very narrow, uh, we'll give you a tax credit for buying an electric car, <laughs> This is like the fifth time we've mentioned it. Oh. Um, it's all they've put out. Yeah, right. basically. That's what there is. To, to an incredibly broad-based sort of terminology that, you know, no matter where you actually are on the spectrum mm -hmm. of the Democratic presidential field now, you can just say Green New Deal, and it's like magic words that mean you're vaguely in favor of the earth not turning into a literal fireball. Right, <laughs> and, I, and I think there's a parallel to like Medicare for All, where there are people who say they back Medicare for All who aren't actually in favor of, you know, a universal healthcare single-payer system. Yes, and that is obviously, I know it's the third segment, but that obviously worries me because we know what previous democratic efforts to legislate our way out of a crisis look like. Yeah. Uh, they happened very recently. Yeah. There, there is a threat that this Green New Deal eventually is the name that gets attached to legislation that is wholly insufficient for right. the task we're faced with. Which and to sort of make clear what that task is, you know, we have the UN report, which says that if we aren't cutting emissions, if we aren't like drastically lowering emissions within the next decade now, the hopes of us avoiding, you know, two degrees of warming are gone, you know, the, and right. that's a threshold that people say would set off worse warming, you know, it would melt, you know, various layers of ice, you know, in the poles and make the problem worse than you know, we want to deal with because yeah. 
not not just worse that we'd want to deal with. But like, worse we're talking that we about can the with. extinction of our entire species and everything that lives on this earth. Like it's bad. It's bad, and it's the the fact that even the bare minimum of policies that need to happen are almost too pie in the sky to to think about is depressing. It is. Well, it and again, it's because the most most of the what's in the quote unquote Green New Deal as it is right now is all, as you put it, it's externality policy. It's mm-hmm. we're either going to punish you for creating emissions or we're going to reward you for investing in things that lower emissions. And that's it, really it. Mm-hmm. It it, it trying all comes to down shape to that. the market. Yes. Right. Yeah. And we need to start thinking the, the only two points that are kind of interesting is people who expand the Green New Deal to include things that we don't typically think of as within the envelope of environmental policy, mm-hmm. which is stuff like capital controls or stuff like curbing tax evasion. These are things that we don't typically consider part of green policy, but which are absolutely necessary to enact the kind of reforms that we're going to need to enact. And I think that that's a little bit heartening in that it says there has to be more beyond just the narrow field of let's greenwash the the market mm-hmm. it it points the way towards a much more it has to be really a reorganization of mm-hmm. society you know yep yeah when you talk about you know these things aren't typically thought of as environmental policy i i think climate change is an issue that is going to touch everything it's going to you know it's going to be an immigration issue you know we, we're it talking is an now immigration it issue. Is an immig- yeah. about how it's a labor issue it's, yeah it's a health care issue it is so many issues yep and and i don't think a lot many people necessarily have their heads wrapped around that yet about you know the scale of what this is you know the comparison has been you know this has to be on the level of mobilizing for world war ii Yep. But mm-hmm. you say that and there are still people out there who laugh that off as, you know, a wild comparison right. to make. Well, it, it's kind of disturbing that you can mobilize a country on, on that scale to go kill people, but not to save their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Well, ironically, as the world warms up and we fall further into this crisis – uh, that's all that there's going to be. We're just going to fall into warfare over the few places left in the world that are habitable. And that that's that's our future. That's, I mean, that's definitely one road that we could head down. You know, we have this saying, you know, socialism or barbarism. The idea being that if we don't make the changes we need to, to avert, you know, climate catastrophe, the only alternative to that is to build more walls and to have more people with guns sitting atop those walls to keep people out from the little land that is left to use. Yeah, yeah the specter of ecofascism is going to haunt, I would guess, most of the world within the next decade if it's not already now. Right. So one of the ways we could and further the goals of the Green New Deal is go beyond just market econ- er, economics economics, (gasps) yeah go beyond market economics and everything like that and to turn away from this emphasis that has been on us for 200 years now of just improving productivity Mm -hmm. if we keep doing just like we said in the last section if we keep going after the ends of productivity 
then like if you keep doing the same thing over and over and expect different results, that's one definition of insanity. Well, I, the, the term that gets thrown about is, you know, a just transition. You know, what is a just transition? It's not just, you know, shifting overnight from, you know, a fossil fuel based economy to one that's based on, you know, clean energy, which has to happen, but one that also accounts for the people who will be displaced by that transition inevitably. You know, we talked about how coal and pipeline workers, they have a reason to fear for their jobs. You know, we don't have a situation where they can be out of work and be comfortable the way they are now working for dirty energy. So how do we build a transition that allows the world to survive without necessarily punishing the people who are just trying to get by in this country? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have to kill work. I mean, we said it before on this show, but at the very least, you're going to have to severely wound the model of work that we have in this society. We currently have this idea that gainful employment uh, and a fulfilling life are derived from working for somebody else to make money off of your sweat and toil. And we basically have to throw that in the trash and reorganize around the idea that people are due a fulfilling life. Because among other things, a lot of those individual choices around consumption and and, and around, you know, um, careful use of resources and so on, become a lot easier if you're not staring down the barrel of economic precarity every second of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's easier to make the choice of doing the environmentally smart thing when it's not tied with how much money or how much usefulness, Mm -hmm. utility you can get out of a thing per dollar you spend. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I could buy the green lawnmower, the electric lawnmower, but it's for what it is. It's, it's not worth the same value as a gas powered one. Like this is a a thing that this is a a, A choice choice. that a lot of people are faced with. And they have to make these choices every day. And it's understandable why that's not necessarily priority to them. Mm -hmm. So we need to build a world where they have real alternatives mm-hmm. to that, you know, dichotomy where they don't necessarily feel under the gun, as you put it, to, you know, they need to maximize every minute of their day so they can't wait around for this electric lawnmower to charge. <laughs> right. There was a, an article in Jacobin a few years ago that I, I particularly like on this subject you know it's talking about this sort of struggle between labor and the environment that we've been discussing this whole show the title of the essay is alive in the sunshine it's by Alyssa Battistoni I believe and the conclusion she reaches is that you know we're gonna have to make do with less you know that's sort of a hard thing for a lot of people a lot of Americans to accept but a just transition is maybe one in which we don't have as many, you know, hamburgers each day. You know, it's maybe one where we aren't driving, you know, taking road trips every weekend. It's one where we have a little less, but in exchange, the planet has a lot more. Yes. And not just and and not just that, but what we lose in the meat that we're eating and in the and and in the I don't know, quote unquote, freedom to consume, right? Mm-hmm. We gain in hopefully by reducing work, by no longer worshiping productivity, by yeah, having and consumption. Yeah. yeah, 
uh, by having meaningful support for people who can't or don't want to work, uh -huh. by having uh, things like universal basic income and, uh -huh. and things like that, we can create a world where you can live a fulfilling life without needing to buy your way into one. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that that's, I mean, you'd have to do that even if the planet weren't in danger. Mm -hmm. right. But the fact that the planet is in such imminent danger makes it not just necessary, but mm -hmm. <laughs> desperately so. I, the other thing I like about that article is it emphasizes the fact that consumerism as it exists right now, even if you frame it in terms of green consumerism, isn't a way forward. Mm -hmm. um, so going back to the first section, when we're talking about our brands, Apple, I'm sorry, your smartphone is not going to fix the planet. Yeah. But, but it can be charged with, with a hand crank. <laughs> doesn't matter. We don't need more gadgets. We need policy yes, change. Yes, we, we right. don't need any more, you know, voice-controlled devices. You know, a few less of them. That those. are listening to you. <laughs> They're so creepy. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. We can't buy or ultimately we really can't legislate our way out of this. It has to do with a level of change that goes beyond everything that we've taught is possible because we've been told that the way this works is, you know, I'm just a bill from Schoolhouse Rock. And that's not really what, and that's not really what we need. And that's not really what the planet needs yeah. either. Gradualism isn't going to work anymore. No, mm -mm. we, we have a very stark choice ahead of us very soon. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people would like us to take the stupid option and, and go with very gradual and very market-based mechanisms. And I think what that's going to end up with is, as you put it, Ryan, more walls and more people with guns on top of them. Mm -hmm. Didn't we say this was going to be the positive segment? Sorry, I well, always do this. It does have <laughs> – but we do have a vision of what yes. that looks like. Right. Yes. I, I don't remember who said this um, on Twitter, but somebody put it as, you'll have less stuff but you'll work less and you'll enjoy your life more. And I think ultimately, if we can achieve that uh, through all of these, uh, through work reduction, through uh, fair wages, well, no wages really, through fair income for people, through the reduction in, in fossil fuel industries and, and elimination of fossil fuel industries, I think we'll have a world that A, will actually survive, but like, be that we can actually be proud of having created. Yeah. And that's honestly a fairly easy and achievable solution. It really is. We it, just, and, and for everybody who says, oh, there's not enough money. There's tons of money. I know exactly where to get it. <laughs> Eat the rich for a start. Compost them. Compost them. There we yeah. go. We're being green. That's just true. <laughs> Compost mm -hmm. the rich. And we'll Not have our way more It'll sustainable. Be fine. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So these things are all achievable. We just need to choose to do it. Mm -hmm. On that note, this has been a fun-ish discussion. <laughs> you know, we thanks. It's, <laughs> it's been a very broad subject, and there's <laughs> so much more we could say about it than we can fit into an hour of radio. But that's all the time we have. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I'm Noah. This is punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo. 
Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.